So I do think those areas where we are turning the chart upside down, using a trading plan, using an accountability partner, and using simple commands to breathe slower can all help us overcome our anchors. Have you ever wondered about how we make decisions about our money? Or why we feel the way we do about those decisions? Welcome to Nudging Financial Behavior, the podcast that aims to help you understand how and why you make certain decisions about money. Presented by Dr. Giselle Willows, an expert in behavioral finance. This podcast is all about looking at human behavior and biases, especially when it comes to your finances. You can catch the series on YouTube, the Nudging Financial Behavior blog, or on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to like and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an episode. Special thanks to our sponsor, IG Market South Africa, a world-leading online trading provider that gives you access to opportunities across thousands of financial markets through their intuitive platforms and apps. Let's get started. Welcome to Episode 9 of Nudging Financial Behaviour. I'm Dr. Shazal Willows. Thank you so much for joining us here today. In this series, it's my goal to help you recognize the biases that can subtly, and sometimes not so subtly, pull or push your thinking into making decisions about your finances that aren't entirely rational. When you're able to recognize these pushes and pulls, you'll be able to make smarter choices about your money and hopefully end up saving and earning more. In this episode, we're looking at the anchoring bias. This one is pretty straightforward to understand, but it's also very surprising how we're impacted by sometimes even the most random of anchor points when it comes to making decisions. I'm going to share some fun examples with you later. Before we do that, please click on the like button and subscribe to our channel if you haven't done so already. The first thing we need to do is define what an anchor point actually is. It's quite simple. Consider the nautical phrase, anchors away. This quite simply refers to the point at which an anchor starts to take weight as it's pulled in, which in turn means the anchors are clear of the sea bottom and the ship is officially underway. An anchor point in decision-making is what we use to start the thinking process, specifically when you need to guess something, or what's that great term, guesstimate. Let's go with a question I like to use to explain this concept. When was Albert Einstein born? If you don't know the answer off the top of your head and you have no access to the internet, how would you answer this question? Perhaps you know that he was somehow associated with the atomic bomb development for the US. Misquoted involvement aside, we're just interested in the timelines. So that must have been before the US dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And you know the Pearl Harbor attack and the Hiroshima bombing was somewhere in the early 1940s. Now we have a date to work from, an anchor point. So when you think of Einstein and all those photos at the height of his career, you don't see a young guy, but an older scientist, perhaps someone in their 60s. Working back 60 years from 1940, our best estimate might be round about 1880. The correct answer is 1879. Pretty close, huh? How did we work it out? We found an anchor to help us, the 1940s, and worked from there to arrive at an educated guess. Whenever we need to guess something, we do this. It'd be foolish to just pick a number off the top of our heads. We start with something we know, and then we use that to guide us into the unknown. Whether it's guessing the number of people in Hong Kong or the height of the Eiffel Tower, we use anchors. There's no other way for us to do it. Problem though, 
is that we also use anchors when we don't need to. Probably the most well-known example of the anchoring effect is an experiment performed in 1974 by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. They asked participants, what is the percentage of African nations in the UN? Well, spinning a wheel of fortune with the numbers from one to 100 on it. Where the wheel stopped was completely irrelevant. However, it was found that it influenced the answers given by their participants. Each person was asked whether their answer was higher or lower than the number shown on the wheel of fortune. The results? For the group that saw the wheel stopping on the number 10, they answered that the percentage of African countries in the UN was 25%. For the group who saw the wheel stop on the number 65, their percentage was higher, 45%. But how can a completely irrelevant number affect our decision-making? There was another well-known experiment published in the Journal of Consumer Research in 2004, where the researchers gave people a completely arbitrary anchor and asked some questions. The anchor was the last two digits of the participant's social security number. They then had to write down how much they would pay for various consumer products. The results showed that we are clearly influenced unconsciously by anchor points, even random ones. Those with higher digits for their social security numbers wrote down higher prices for the products than those with lower numbers. Crazy, I know. In the interest of science, we decided to hit the streets of Cape Town and see if we could replicate the experiment. We asked people to tell us the last two digits of their mobile phone number and then tell us how much they're willing to pay for a tin of tuna. Random, I know. But that's the point of the whole experiment, to be random. Uh, one zero. Good quality tuna, a tin, I would say, maybe like 20 for a tin. Zero six, a uh, tuna, 16 rand. Double zero, like 19 rand. Uh, nine, nine, nine. I want to say 25 rand, but I suspect probably 30 something. 30 something rands. Seven, eight. Probably 30 bucks. <laughs> Do you think those people were anchored by their mobile phone numbers? I mean, it's entirely possible. It's a little bit frightening how easily we can be so influenced by something random and just so simple. I mean, multiple choice surveys are also fraught with anchoring bias examples. Those that use a sliding scale invariably anchor the respondent to the middle value. If you ask someone how often they wash their hair in a month on a scale of 0 to 20, they'll likely give a number somewhere in the middle. Changing the scale to 0 and 30, and they'll likely increase the answer. In fact, this cognitive bias is everywhere. We're confronted by it on a regular basis. It's used all the time by real estate agents, car salesmen, investment brokers, and supermarkets. Quite simply, by anyone who wants us to buy something. If you're being presented with a number and then asked to make a decision with it, be assured that you're being tricked into a behavior that is most likely not in your best interest. From a behavioral perspective, we also subliminally create our own anchors. Let's look at the real estate market. A potential seller might get a variety of estate agents to come value their house. It's only natural that the seller then ends up being anchored to the highest valuation they receive. When the house is on the market and offers start coming in, the seller might not accept those offers because the offers are not at that top valuation price. Even though they might be offers at the more realistic valuation suggested by another estate agent. By being anchored to another price, they miss out on that opportunity. If you want to dig even deeper into human psychology, 
Some sellers purposely set the asking price too high because they're not emotionally ready to move on. But that's a whole different discussion. Now, I want to bring in what we spoke about in the last episode, the framing effect, and show how it can really shape your decision-making when coupled with anchoring. As a reminder, framing is a bias. It's not about the specific information that you're presented with, but rather how that information is presented to you. In other words, it's not what you say, but how you say it. Essentially, the framing of information changes your perception of the actual information. Presenting the same situation in a different way using different frames can anchor people in a certain way. Present a situation in terms of possible losses, and people will likely take on risks to avoid those losses. However, frame that same situation in terms of possible gains, and we become risk-averse in trying to protect those gains. I'm not going to go into specifics here because the topic of risk aversion and loss aversion could be a podcast episode all on its own. In fact, you've given me an idea here. I think we'll definitely need to make a plan to come back to it in a later episode. What's interesting about the anchoring bias, though, is that there is actually a term for how it impacts financial decisions. We use the term the anchored investor. For an investor, a typical anchor is the original purchase price. A bias called loss aversion, which we're not talking about in detail today, means that we are unlikely to sell for below that original purchase price. It's common to be anchored to that initial price after you've bought the share. But when you need to make a subsequent decision to sell or hold or buy more, other biases like regret avoidance and the disposition effect come knocking. Also, new information is often not taken into consideration and we believe our original viewpoint that led us to initial investment is more relevant than any information that comes afterwards. This sounds like confirmation bias, doesn't it? Perhaps even herding behavior. Also, Think about how analysts might go about valuing a company. Do they always start with a brand new fundamental analysis? Or do they look at a previous valuation and adjust based on that? Remember this when using broker recommendations. Can you see how anchors are linked to almost every other cognitive bias? This is why diversification and having a long-term outlook is so important. I've got Louise Bedford, one of Australia's best-selling authors, a trading mentor and host of Talking Trading Podcasts on the line to chat to us about anchors. Welcome to the podcast, Louise. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, it's lovely to see you, Dr. Giselle. Good to see you too. Tell us, in your wealth of experience as a trader and mentor to other traders, can you share with us some examples of common anchors you've seen influencing trading decisions? Mm. Anchors, it's such a good word, isn't it? Because it ties us down to the ground in some way. So let's have a look at three specific anchors. The first one would be stock anchoring. Now, the way that I think about stock anchoring is when people think of the price that they got in at and they think that is the only truth in the entire world and everything is anchored to that price. So they think if it goes up, oh, how much money have I made? Because I got in at this price and I'm going to get out at this price. It actually inspires us to have much more fear and greed than you would expect. So really, we need to look at each stock individually. That emotional attachment to a stock does none of us any good as traders. The other type of anchoring I like to think of is identity anchoring. I am this type of person. I and this type of person because I never make a loss in the markets. I am a good trader. I always stick to my trading plan. 
we anchor ourselves to our identity principles and we have trouble moving away. And if we do have to move away, that inspires cognitive dissonance, which is that uncomfortable feeling when there's a mismatch between your actions and your values. So be careful about the identity cues that you're allowing into your own mind. And then the other type of anchoring that I like to think about is future anchoring. Now, this is where we imagine ourselves in the future and we work out how do we get where we, from where we are now to where we want to be. Now, that future anchoring can be quite insidious. If we are used to having a job, but then all of a sudden we have a disability or maybe there's an interruption to our work life, we think of ourselves as a type of person that's working to the age of 65 and retiring because that's our future anchor. But now we've been thrown that curveball and it can actually sweep us off our feet. So be careful about the futures that you anchor to and make sure they are broad enough to encourage a variety of different circumstances. Otherwise, you might just get hooked into a future that you are not wanting for yourself currently. Yes, it's good to have a five-year plan and a 10-year plan, but you've got to be careful of anchoring yourself too much to that plan. So true. So do you think that perhaps there are any telltale signs that we can pick up to warn us that we're being held down by an anchor? Well, one of them is definitely reluctance to sell a stock or even reluctance to buy a stock. This reluctance is in the face of really all of the evidence that you've got in your trading plan, all of the evidence from your charts is telling you one thing, but you are feeling another way. And that internal friction is the thing that wakes us up at 3am in the morning where you think, oh my goodness, what calamities are going to come to us? Maybe I'm going to be a millionaire. It's often extremely binary. So that is one thing to really consider. The other aspect is information aversion. Now, this is a cognitive bias. Information aversion is where when we are doing well in the markets, we check our portfolios 500 times during the day because it just gives us that dopamine kick and we're so happy with ourselves. But when things aren't going as well, we avoid looking at our portfolio and that can be definitely to our detriment. So that is one to definitely look out in terms of your own behaviour. How often are you checking your stocks? And is that something that you are comfortable with? And probably the other aspect to that would be money scripts. So these are the concepts that are passed down to us. Often multiple generations are responsible for this. It's the things we heard at the top of the stairs as a child. What are the money scripts that we have from our parents and from our grandparents that tell us whether money is good or bad? How should we respond to money? And what is our physiological reaction to money? So if you're ever sitting in front of a computer screen and you can feel yourself starting to sweat, you can feel your heart rate increase, you can feel your breathing becomes more shallow, all of those are physiological reactions that could even be related to your money scripts and how you're feeling that represents itself physically. So there's some good things to look out for. Very useful telltale signs for us to look out for. So one more question, if I may. Do you have any tips of how we can then go about overcoming these anchors? 
you know, if we can pick them up, how do we then limit bad decision making? Sure, let me fix it all for you. (laughs) The first one I think we should all get into the habit of doing is if we've got a charting package that allows us to flip the chart upside down, if when it was around the right way, you were bullish, and then when you flip it, you are still bullish, you have a definite problem. That is absolute evidence that you have got an optimism bias. You're only seeing the best and that can actually bite us as traders. So if you can at all, through your charting package, flip that chart upside down, that is an ideal thing to do. And then other things that we can do is use a written trading plan. This is really important because a written trading plan will help guide your actions even when you are under stress. Another aspect that you could look at is using an accountability partner. Have you got a trading friend that you can talk with that will help keep you on the straight and narrow? And perhaps my only other piece of advice with this is breathe slower. Now, often in the markets, when we have that rush, that feeling where everything is coming up into our throat because everything is contracting, we need to actually use our breathing as a macro way to encourage us to calm down. Now, I interviewed Dr. Hank Weisinger and he made an interesting point. He said rather than telling yourself to, okay, I have to slow down my breathing, it's okay, but I have to slow down my breathing, we can't hear that. We need just a few commands when we are under physiological pressure. He actually has encouraged me to keep a sign up near my trading desk that says, breathe slower. You can't deny that, can you? It's absolutely clear. So I do think those areas where we are turning the chart upside down, using a trading plan, using an accountability partner, and using simple commands to breathe slower can all help us overcome our anchors. Some very useful tips there. Thank you so much, Louise. It's a pleasure. So much to think about there. I might well be printing out a sign to remind me to breathe slower to hang above my desk. So now that you know about anchors and how they can be totally arbitrary, or they can be deeply ingrained in us from childhood, what do you do next? As I've said again and again, being aware of the bias is the first step in interrogating whether it's a helpful one or a hindrance. We're constantly being anchored by reference points and we need to be able to spot them. Buy four for the price of three, that's anchoring right there. When you speak to your financial advisor, their recommendations are an anchor. Companies' earning announcement will also affect your assessment of their stock price. If there are two things that you can take away from this episode, I want them to be, firstly, that there is a difference between price and value. Secondly, setting an anchor with your investment returns needs to be done carefully because you're looking at long-term goals and not short-term returns. Right, it's time to say anchors away on this episode of Nudging Financial Behaviour, brought to you by IG Market South Africa. Please like this episode and subscribe to our channel. In the next episode, we're going to recap everything we've spoken about in this season. And we have a couple of bonus questions and answers to share with you from each of our interview guests this season. You don't think I let them off that easily, do you? You definitely do not want to miss the final episode of season one of Nudging Financial Behaviour. That was Nudging Financial Behaviour, hosted by behavioural finance expert, Dr. Giselle Willows. Make sure you like and subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. You can catch the Nudging Financial Behaviour podcast on YouTube, our blog, 
or your favorite podcast streaming platform. Thank you again to our sponsors, IG Market South Africa, for helping to bring the show to life. And now for the disclaimer. This podcast should not be seen as advice. All the information and opinions are the general nature. They are not intended to address the needs or circumstances of any individual. We are not financial advisors, neither are any of our staff or service providers, nor is our sponsor. All expressions of opinion by the host or guest are subject to change without notice in reaction to shifting market conditions. Any information you get from us should be seen as only that, information only.